0: Always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, "Would I want to go see this movie?" Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. We're getting more gifts. Uh, l- let's start there. We are getting more gifts in the mail from anonymous sources. I finished the Martin Scorsese book by John Sean. I'm just going to assume the publisher abrams has heard of the podcast has heard that we do scorsese stories and sent me the book it's phenomenal 276 pages big coffee table book i loved every second of it i finished it i implore all of you to go buy it if you have any interest in the greatest director of all time we're getting more gifts now if you can describe for the audience what i'm holding currently in my hand what do you see here it says movie buff. <laughs> it looks like playing cards, doesn't it? It just says movie buff. They so, look like playing cards for a ninety-year-old. So I open these up and I go, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. It's probably I don't play board games or card games, but this kind of maybe get back in that groove of things. But you open it up and it's just like it says, take five, take five. Okay, fine. You can go to the other side. It's just like a deck of cards that says quote or reverse angle or actor. And I'm like, hang on a second. I like games like if it was an actual card saying. This actor was a grifter and loves high fidelity, but you always know with him you could say anything. Oh, who is John Cusack? Like <laughs> this just basically says take fun. Like I don't understand what that means. So I haven't even bothered to look at the directions of said game. If it's a trivia game that doesn't actually have trivia questions, not all that interested. But thanks to movie buffs, just another gift. This will be all stanser. Go ahead. This is another one.
1: You and the you got, oh, you're giving me the bad gift.
0: Right. You have five siblings. You guys just to sit around and play movie buff, report back, and let me know how this we is. We do play Trivial Pursuit every <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> now to be replaced by movie buff. Goldderby.com is the number one prognosticating site. That's where I have all my picks for when it comes to the Oscars um, and the Emmys. So first and foremost, the Emmys. It's not often stands like 16 of 36 would be considered decent. That was my score on the Emmy predictions out of the experts. Wait, that's good? Out of the experts who are on that website, including the great Tom O'Neill. Of the 36 categories, number one, I think the person got 20. I actually finished, of the 16 experts listed, with 16 of 36. That's 43%. I finished eighth. Middle of the pack. That's how unpredictable this year's Emmys were, or that's how poor the experts are in goldderby.com. Wait,
1: were they that unpredictable? Oh, yeah. Because you see Game of Thrones coming, sure. People versus O.J. Simpson, got it. Yeah, you see Tambor coming, you see Julia Louis-Dreyfus coming, It sure. they seem pretty obvious to me. No, no,
0: but after that, there's a lot of, listen... I thought Spacey was going to win for Best Actor. Surprising that uh, my man Rami Malek coming through. Although I was happy to see it. I haven't seen that show, but apparently he's awesome. Rami Malek over Kevin Spacey. Not a lot of us saw coming. House of Cards. Okay, one surprise. (laughs) Listen, once you go through all the categories, I'm telling you, it gets a little bit tricky. By the way, Jimmy Kimmel, the best joke of the night was the Cosby joke. And he says, here he is, Dr. Bill Cosby. And you just see Tina Fey's face, just aghast. Everyone just terrified. He's not actually here. I just want to see how you guys would react. (laughs) <laughs> check out my Oscar picks though there goldderby.com the big favorite right now is La La Land that won the audience award at the Toronto Film Festival uh, it's going to be opening December 9th limited release December 16th after that it's a musical which admittedly is not a genre I'm a fan of my friend Tim Kirchner once said to me you know, what are some famous movies you've never seen I said well I've never seen The Sound of Music I've never seen Guys and Dolls he's like okay I see a trend here you don't like musicals. I'm like, I just don't, he goes, is it the fact they just burst into song out of nowhere? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's probably the issue. They just, for no reason, they just start singing in verse. Uh, But I will go see La La Land because it's getting tremendous buzz and I do love Ryan Gosling. Having said that, the big news, December 23rd, Marty's new movie, Silence, has been announced. They said before it was going to come out in November. They just released this yesterday. Release date, December 23rd, following the model, The Revenant, so many other movies. You go limited release, end of December. Then you go wide release January. You suck up all the Oscars. This is a passion project that, you know... A lot of the movies that Marty's made lately are, are very proficient and stylistic, and they're great, but they're not passion projects. Wolf of Wall Street's not something that he's like. I got to make that movie. Leo read the book because you're the only guy that can make this. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, three hours, men behaving badly. Marty, you can do this. He goes, All right, fine, I'll do it. Because a huge shit, ton of money, Oscars, etc. Um, you know, The Aviator is not a film that was come from his heart. It's just like, Hey, this is a good story, It'll be interesting. Hugo was given to him. Um, By his friend who said, listen, Marty, this is exactly you, Graham King, the producer. Silence, this story is about 17th century Jesuit priests who go to Japan and then face persecution. So this is purely born out of a pure Marty idea. Like he, Gangs of New York was a passion project. For two decades he tried to make that movie. Silence is a movie he said for two decades he's tried to make this. He couldn't get the financing. Daniel Day-Lewis originally was in the movie. It's now going to be Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield, and Adam Driver cost 51 million which for his movie is is quite paltry. Uh, but I can't wait to see it. I know it's probably a tough sell for audiences in December. If it's not hey, who wants to see movie of a Jesuit priest being persecuted in 17th century Japan? What? Martin Scorsese directed. Okay, I'm in. Like December 23rd, I'll be there. So I look forward to that. Uh, that once again is on gold com. We have a great guest today. Norm Macdonald is hysterical. He is coming up momentarily. He's so funny. Um, we went in a lot of different directions, and I find that Norm is very irreverent. Either you're really all in on his style, and it's very idiosyncratic, or you just find him strange and unnerving. Or maybe you find it to be both. Uh, I absolutely loved it, and you're going to hear him talk about a bevy of topics, including uh, including O.J.'s resurgence, um, his, his time at Saturday Night Live, the film Dirty Work, how that gets confused for others. There's, there's lots of different directions that we're going to go in there. Speaking of trying to get guests, this is what it's like now for me in Stancy. And by the way, we gotta get the ask out now, because Marty, December twenty-third, silence, he's gonna wanna do that everywhere. So I think we have a pretty good shot. Now that we got De Niro, I mean, once we get Marty's guy, hey, listen, Bob's been on the show. Can we get Marty? And we'll do it in December. But here's how it happens. You have to use every angle possible. I'm working the World Cup of Hockey. Chris Chelios is one of the guys that I'm working with. And I know he's tight with John Cusack. At one point he even mentioned it. he goes, Oh, Cusack just texted me. Oh, Cutler's getting killed in Chicago. I'm like, all right, how do I broach this subject? Yeah, you, know, you work with them for a few days. You get to know them a little bit. Then you go, hey, okay, I do this podcast. So I just go ahead. Hey, man, I do this podcast. And I thought, huh? Yeah, it's a good movie thing. Oh, okay, cool. I'm like, you know, I'd love to get John Cusack on. I don't know if you he can help me with that. That's how you say it. You don't go, hey, what's his manager's number? Because that doesn't, who cares if I have John Cusack's manager's number? If Chris Chalio says, hey, do this for me. This guy's a good guy. That's the best chance you have. So could you help me out with that? Sure. Immediately. Gets his phone out, texts him, let you know what he says. <laughs> Hour later, he writes back. <laughs> he just laughs. He goes, ah, Cusack. What do you write back? He goes, he was just like, because Chris had written, do you want to do this podcast? This guy he used to be, and he wrote, not really, unless there's money involved. So I said, well, write back and tell him De Niro did it, and De Niro did it for free. He goes, I'll write that back. And then Chelly says, hey, oh, we got a little, we got a little action. Here. I go, really? What are you ready?" He goes, what's his name? How many followers does he have? You know, what does he do? All right, good. So Chris writes back. How many followers? I 75,000. Go, okay, good. We're getting about 30,000 per episode. Okay, good. All right. He writes it back. Hour later, Chelly looks at me and goes, Ship has sailed. I go, what do you mean? What did he write back? He goes, he hasn't. That's the thing about Cusack. He goes, like, if he doesn't write back, he goes, now I'm not going to hear from him for like another four days. I go, are you kidding? He goes, I'm telling you right now, he's not interested. I was like, man. I go, does he have anything coming out? I go, that's the big thing. If these guys have something coming out, then they want to promote it. Because goes, nothing. He's got nothing to the can. I go, all right, that's a bummer, but thanks, anyways. He goes, don't worry about it. He's, he's, he's kind of become crazy, anyways. I'm like, in what respect? He goes, he's kind of like paranoid and stuff. He goes, like, the whole Snowden thing. I'm like, what do you mean the whole Snowden thing? He's like, he went and he visited Snowden. I'm like the real Ed Snowden. John Cusack visited him in Russia. He's like, yeah, for like three days. I said, what did Cusack think of him? He goes, said so he's a cool dude. <laughs> I said, so what does this mean? He goes, well, now Cusack, like he's he's kind of paranoid. Like he's like I think the government's watching him now. Like he's like he's kind of I'm telling you, he's a close friend of mine. But he's a little crazy. Like he's a little worried now. Like he thinks his phones wiretapped and emails. So and I'm like, all right. Well, we didn't get John Cusack, but at least we got a story, and that story dovetails into the movie that I'm reviewing first, which is Oliver Stone's new film, Snowden. And it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I think it's, first and foremost, it's Oliver Stone's best movie in 17 years. I mean, this is one of the great filmmakers of our time. Won Oscars for Platoon, which is one of my favorite war movies, Born on the Fourth of July, which I think is still very powerful. Um, Any Given Sunday, which I think is a great baseball movie, very stylish movie, and u Turn. Uh, you know, Nixon, I think, is an underrated biography. But he hasn't made a great film since Any Given Sunday, which was 1999. Like, he's made The Savages. He made Wall Street 2. Like, there's uh, W, which is very goofy and cartoonish and like a caricature. So Stone actually hasn't made a really provocative Oliver Stone-type movie in a long time. So when Snowden comes along, you go, oh, this is perfect. Paranoid, government intrigue, you know, preying off of people's fears and insecurities. I'm like, that's, that's the Oliver Stone that I'm looking for. And thankfully, I think in many ways, this movie hits the target. Uh, and the big reason why is he's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's a real chameleon as an actor. I think he has a lot of versatility, and he's shown that in his career. And I think as, as Snowden, he kind of inhabits him and makes him fully formed. You know, you've seen Snowden News. I saw Citizen Four, the documentary, which won the Oscar, which is about him. And he comes across as a little bit stilted and, and monochromatic. And, you know, Gordon-Levitt, he does a good job with the voice first. So he's got a very kind of monotone voice. Um, but he gives him some depth. You know, he shows him with his girlfriend played by Shailene Woodley. He shows that he's a guy who falls in love. And he's a guy who now, if you just hear the word Snowden, if you're on the left, people love him and say, like, you know, he came through because he's a whistleblower. And people on the right hate him and think he's a traitor. The first shock of the movie is that he's very much a right winger. When he meets Shailene Woodley early on when he's young, she's talking to the fact that he goes, Oh, I like I'm a Republican. And she's like, What do you mean? He's like, Oh, I'm like a huge conservative and I believe in less government involvement and blah blah blah. And she's like this young, typical liberal who challenges authority and so that was the first thing like, oh, he actually is like a very right wing hawkish guy. And he wants to be in the CIA and he wants to be a part of the military, but you know, he has health issues. He then meets an unfortunate cameo, Nicolas Cage, pops up and I'm like, listen, I, I think Nicholas Cage did an okay job with it, but he's just he's become such a parody. Like he's such a hack with so many bad movies he's made that now you just can't take him seriously. Now I worry if I went back and saw good Nicolas Cage movies like obviously leaving Las Vegas or Red Rock West or even the film he did with Marty Bringing Out the Dead, I think it would be like, oh, God, Nicolas Cage just punched me in the face. I think that's how much his stock has dropped down. So he's actually okay in Stone. It's a small role, but just the fact that Nick and his cage is uh, unnerving. But anyway, Snowden then goes ahead and, and gets a job at the National Security Agency. So this is fascinating. Now he's working for NSA. And I don't know a lot about this world and the government intrigue, but it's interesting how Snowden kind of goes in there and he's very honest and forthright about why he wants the job. He's like, I just... I want to kind of know what the secrets are about the life. But this is the most important part of Snowden, the film, and and basically what this whole environment is. Once you're in, you can't get out. Like, it's like the mafia. Like, no matter what happens, you have to stay silent. You can't do anything. Like, no matter what the protocol is that's being breached, whatever violations are occurring, once you're in, it's like a blood oath. And what happens is that he starts to see how this mountain of data is being assembled to track all forms of digital communication. And it is not just foreign governments and terrorist groups. It's not just a guy with a foreign-sounding name, and you go, "All right, let's start tracking him." But they go above and beyond that, and immediately they start taking liberties. So all of a sudden, the guy's an ethnic-sounding name. Hmm, well, let's see what his daughter's up to. Oh, let's go to her Facebook page. Okay, let's let's make her miserable. Like they are literally toying with people's lives. And Snowden sees this, and he's appalled. He's like, "Hang on a second, you guys aren't just targeting terrorists. You're just targeting average Americans who." Are from foreign countries like Syria or you know the Middle Eastern countries that you go maybe this guy's a terrorist, but you actually have no information and you're you're blatantly looking at his emails and his his daughter's Facebook page. Like, this isn't right. This isn't what you should be doing. And they're like, whatever, we're gonna do whatever we can. What are you talking about? This is this is Homeland Security. We do whatever we want. There are no rules. We make up the rules. We're the ones who are the authorities here. And Snowden starts the wheels start to turn. Like I don't I don't know if this is right necessarily. And the moment that he really gets unnerved by is that they start spying on this girl and they're doing it through uh the camera like her webcam so later on he goes home he's wishing with Sheila Woodley, his girlfriend and, and he puts a piece of tape over the computer and she's like what are you doing he's like i oh, you don't you know it's just whatever security measure." she's like what do you mean and she's like what are the russians watching me he's like yeah it's just like you know like not this russians but you know i, I can't get into it she goes what american cia national security agency is watching me at all times he's like yeah like they're watching all of us like yeah, and she's like, what do you mean? Because he's horrified. Like, later on, they're, like, making love, and he's like, no, these guys are looking at my girlfriend, like, in her bikini and bra, and they're just sitting there cracking jokes and having beers. Like, it sounds so outlandish, but once you see how it's created, you go, yeah, of course these guys know what's going on. And so much so that, like, now it makes, not that it makes me paranoid, but it does call to reality that every single thing you say and do is being watched. And it's not necessarily that the rooms being bugged. But if you send an email and you say something critical about our government or you make some sort of flippant comment, they don't view it as flippant. (laughs) They put you in a watch list like, all right, let's start tracking Dan Stanzik's email. He seems to be rather anti-authoritarian, has some issues with our government, rather fierce libertarian. Okay, add him to the list. We got plenty of guys here to track. And, and, and that's the breaking point. Like it just keeps building and building for Snowden. And Oliver Stone does an excellent job of creating that tension and that drama of how this guy who is so rigid and so dedicated to the government eventually starts to turn. And when do you have that crisis moment? When do you have that crisis of conscience that you go, hang on a second, this isn't right. And I'm going to be a whistleblower. And I'm going to tell them these guys. So eventually, you know, for those that don't know the fact-based tale, he ends up, you know, spilling the beans, ends up going to, uh, to Russia, which is where he now lives. He'd love to come home. Joseph Gordon-Levitt met with them for research to me. He goes, listen, I want to come home. But if he comes home, he's going to be tried and persecuted, maybe thrown in jail. And, and he believes that he should be pardoned. And it's very polarizing. Either you think because Snowden leaked classified information, if you believe that because he went against what he signed up for, that he is therefore a traitor by letting loose the fact that the government and what they're doing is wrong, then you, you feel like he's a you know a fugitive from the law. Those that think he's a hero – is the fact that he saw something that was incorrect that was going on, a protocol that was absolutely incorrect and unconstitutional, and said, I need to call attention to this, and the best way I can call attention to it is by leaking it to the media and making a major news story. Then you think he's a hero. You go, this guy had some serious guts to now risk his life and now living overseas and – and to say, no, this isn't right. So the film definitely caters towards that latter sentiment. Stone clearly thinks that he's heroic in what he did and that you need more whistleblowers like this. Definitely reminded me of the film The Insider, uh, You know, in that you have people here under duress, making challenging choices, facing stress, facing uh, adversity, and and trying to overcome it. So the film's a little bit heavy-handed at times, probably could have been a little bit riskier, you know, I think some like Stone's great films, like Natural Born Killers is a movie I love. Stylistically, he took so many chances with that, with the color correction and the jump cuts and the crazy music and things that have sequenced. Snowden does not do that. Like, he, in terms of cinematically, Stone shoots it very close to the vest. He's not using any of those uh, tricks of the trade, so to speak, to tell a rather straightforward story. But. I definitely recommend it. Like I said, for Stone, it's a good comeback. I give it three Maple Leafs. So Snowden is the film currently now in theaters. Before we get to Norm MacDonald, since Stanzik is
1: always politically savvy, your thoughts on Snowden? I'm assuming you haven't seen the film. What do you think of the guy? I'm kind of on the fence. I mean, I don't really have a side. But the whole part where you're talking about, you can view him either way. Like He clearly signed up for something and broke the rules. It reminded me of a Douglas MacArthur quote. You are remembered for the rules that you break.
0: Yeah, and from that perspective, like, it was gutsy what he did
1: because it's like,
0: not to be too moralistic, but this isn't right. I need to call attention to this no matter what the consequences are. And I guess the other side would say, well, then you go to your superiors and there's a line of command and you do this and you say, but yeah, but they're not going to listen. Once I start chirping, once they think I'm insubordinate, then I'm done. They'll fire me. They'll get rid of me.
1: Yeah, it's real easy to cast off what he did, but it's not easy to do what he did. That is profound. Well done by Stanzik.
0: Uh, Coming up, we're going to review a movie called Audrey and Daisy, which is a documentary about teen sexual assault. It's an excellent documentary. We'll be talking to the filmmakers as well. Also, Green Room uh, with Patrick Stewart and the late Anton Yelchin, real tragic story that he's now passed away. And also the family movie Storks, now in theaters with my guy Andy Samberg. Now, if Andy Samberg's in it after Popstar, I have to go support him and watch everything that he does. But first, here is the great Norm MacDonald. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile as we continue. I'm Adnan Virg, joined by special guest Norm MacDonald. Wait, why is uh, Jeff
2: Goldblum on?
0: Well, yeah, sometimes we have all these TVs up here in the studio. There's maybe a story about Goldblum going on. He's looking kind of creepy there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah.
2: usually you can tell by the picture. That something's happened to him. Because he's in a bathroom. There's a picture of him in a bathroom. Yeah. I, mean, I think he must be selling something, right? Because it's a Goldblum
0: yeah, 8 it, for those 10 Look at it, his muscle It's a Goldblum 8 by 10 There's pictures yeah, of he Maybe he's he coming to, to the... Connecticut.
2: He told me a story, but I guess I'm not at liberty, really, to... That's, that's okay. To
0: um, a I'll, sto- tell you off,
2: I'll tell you off pod. <laughs> Please do. Two Canadians here. Yeah, that's right.
0: You're the second Canadian to be on the podcast. Will Arnett was the first. Will one. Arnett. Do you Where know Will Arnett? Where's he from? He's from Toronto, okay. and he's right, right in the city. You were born in Quebec City, but you grew up in Ontario?
2: Yeah, you know, Quebec City is all French, and uh, we were English. So, uh, you know, the English hate the French, and the French hate the English. Right, the Québécois. So, so uh, yeah, I was born in the, with the Québécois around. and uh, So uh, my dad, um, you could go to school, you could either learn French mm-hmm. or Latin. <laughs> this is so my dad would not <laughs> let me learn French because he was so afraid that I would, you know, take up with a French girl or something like that. So I learned Latin. And that doesn't help you that much. In Quebec City, where there's a lot of French and no ancient Romans.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I will say this Montreal is more bilingual. Like, Quebec City oh, is yeah. it, very much French. No, yeah, Montreal is English. In yeah. Montreal, if you go there, you speak English, you feel fine. People get terrified. They go, oh my God, I don't know the, the language. I, I don't understand Oh that. no,
2: Montreal is very cosmopolite.
0: The reason I mention this is last week you met Donald Trump during you know the Tonight Show. How well, hard, I sort of met him. Well, how big are his hands?
2: I, I didn't really shake his hand. Okay, this is what happened. I I have met him before, right. and he does have gigantic hands. <laughs> it's like uh, shaking the hand of a, a Holstein cow. <laughs> no, but um, this is what happened. This is this is the true thing that happened. There's like about four minutes difference because I had to follow him. You know, so right. he leaves in the hall, and I'm in the hall, and I'm going to go on. Right, I'm the second guest. Mm-hmm. First time ever, I'm in the second guest. Thanks to Trump. So uh, I see Donald Trump. So I say, Donald, can I get a picture? Can I get a picture? So he turns to me and he goes, hey, points at me, you know. He goes, uh, big smile. He goes, just give me one minute and we'll take a picture. So I go, thanks. Then he turns around. He has a secret service. And he walks down the hall and gets in an elevator. (laughs) Just Donald said a,
0: Trump completely stiffed you. Yeah, he said in a minute, and then
2: he <laughs> left the building. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the oldest trick in the book. Give me one second. I'll yeah, yeah. be right back. Exactly. You just standing there, at a ball game. Can you <laughs> sign my ball? Oh no. my God! Well, the reason I mentioned this, I remember
2: is- Euchre. I was with Euchre oh. in, a, yeah. in a in a, a booth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in Arizona. It was a spring training, and so all the fans were trying to reach up, you know, to hand him balls to sign, you know. Mm-hmm. So Euchre would sign uh, a ball. And then he'd hand it to me. He goes, here, fucking sign it. So I go, no, I don't want to sign it. Like, they don't want me to sign it. He goes, sign it, man. So I go, all right. So I'd sign the ball, and then the guy would get it. Go, oh. Like, I completely devalued what value Euchar had just put on the baseball. (laughs) That's not true. It's more value than that. probably worth less than an actual baseball at that point. I want to get your thought. This is why I'm considering. I mean, a store bought baseball.
0: Because as Canadians, you know, we're not allowed to vote in this country. No, we can't vote. As people keep saying, no, you have to. Barry Melrose is like, no, you have to apply for U.S. citizenship so you can vote. This is the most important election of our time. And I looked up the rule. I don't know if you ever went this far, but in order to apply for U.S. citizenship, there's a caveat there, Norm, that says you must renounce all loyalty to any other country.
2: I said, "Hang on Wait. a second. Like,
0: I'm proud to be an American, but I'm a proud Canadian. I can't, you can't be a loyalty. dual citizen. No, it's it's you can, but you have to renounce loyalty to Canada. Oh, I, right? see. I I don't want to renounce loyalty.
2: Yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that I your mean.
0: reasoning as well? That you've never. No, my
2: it? reasoning is that the test is way too hard. You know what I mean? How many Supreme Court justices? Yeah. Are there? How many stripes on the flag? I don't know. Like our flag has a uh, uh, a Maybe. leaf. <laughs> I like hear a flag is so important. Like, you can't burn it. Oh, you can't burn the flag. You have flag. to stand for it. Yeah, Canada. It gets cold, you burn the flag. I mean, there's a leaf on it. It almost invites incineration, you know?
0: <laughs> Especially, like, the prairie and, uh, provinces. They, they don't really, in Saskatchewan. Go ahead. What yeah,
2: prairies, yeah, by? yeah. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders... And the Ottawa Rough Riders, eight teams in the eight CFL, teams, and both had the
0: same nickname for years. Two but, of them. The first question Americans would always ask me. Yeah, they ask about. But there's Don no Jerry. answer to it. No, is there? there is no answer. It's just a really good name, though. I think I don't it's think that's fantastic a name. It's yeah. also
2: an American name because you know <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. So cool. I don't know how it came to Canada, but no one has the answer to the question. Your brother's a
0: journalist at CBC, isn't he? Yeah, it? You yeah. Should ask him.
2: Yeah, he should do it I like just, a documentary and try to figure it out because <laughs> no one has the yeah, answer. Seriously, asked people. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> they laugh, and I go, no, but seriously. Like, ah, yeah, It's funny. Because, you know, you used to listen to uh, football games on the radio. Mm-hmm. And It would be very confusing because, they, you know, they'd be going, the Rough Riders have it at the five-yard line. Bad news for the Rough Riders. If the Rough Riders get it here, the Rough Riders are in big trouble. You know, you go, what the? F- What's going on? So,
0: SNL Weekend Update, you were tremendous. And so much of it was not only your delivery but also your fearlessness. And it's one of the greatest jokes ever. I encourage everybody to go look it up. Norm was talking about Lisa Marie Presley and Michael Jackson, and he said they split up, studying irreconcilable differences. She's more of a stay-at-home mom. He's more of a homosexual pedophile.
2: Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were fearless. Like, did you have any? I remember Lauren saying,
2: you know, you better, uh, you know, if you, uh, you don't want to be sued by Michael Jackson. And I go, no, no, but secretly I did. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, that would be the coolest thing ever would be like, and now Michael Jackson versus Norm. I'd be like, oh, my God, this is, I mean, cool. I mean, How could that not be good for your career?
0: But Don Ohlmeyer, because he was buddies. Don with,
2: Olmeyer was the, uh, for o. the J- folks at home. Right, right. Was the uh, executive in charge of entertainment uh, for the entire uh, network of NBC.
0: And only because you were making scathing, hysterical jokes at O.J. Simpson's expense, who's now back in the news because the show was a huge hit. He's back in the news. Well, the show—I should say—his name is back in the news. Like the Emmys, Sarah Paulson won. The show won. What show? Oh, oh, oh the, the people oh, versus O.J. Simpson. Right, yeah. right, right. And then the O.J. documentary, Thirty for Thirty, yes, is yes. on ESPN. And and I think you should get more praise for the fact you were attacking him rightfully so, and just because Olmeyer was buddies with him, it was like, hey, hey, you can't touch O.J. It's like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, why
2: wasn't I in that movie? <laughs> oh, the Thirty for Thirty—that's
0: true, actually. Or <laughs> the uh,
2: Thirty for Thirty. Yeah, they could have put that on. <laughs> just, well, or the the dra- the drama. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah people were. They could have had like Jay Moore going, "Hey, what's going on?" Could have had hey, that <laughs> hilarious impression.
0: David Letterman needed a Bette Midler moment that final week, and he got it from you. Oh, uh, that's what I was thinking. Because, and and it was so great. I, I watched it again. Not
2: that I meant to, to uh, cry. No. I didn't mean that, but I wanted to do one of his jokes. That was
0: my idea. It was awesome. It was amazing what you did. You went on. You were it was the final week of Dave's show. And you said growing up in – I love this, by the way. You said growing up in Toronto, Canada. Nobody ever says Toronto, Ontario. Yeah. They like to make it very plain. Toronto, Canada. Do, yeah. And you said there's a joke that Dave used to tell. You tell it. You know the joke.
2: It was on a show called 90 uh, Minutes Live hosted by Peter Zosky. <laughs> and the guests were Ricky Jay and uh, David Letterman. And I was a- – in the audience the young teenager and uh, his joke was um, I was driving down the street the other day and uh, and in front of me was a uh, garbage truck and on the back of the garbage truck was a tiny sign that said please do not follow too closely one of life's simple pleasures ruined by a meddling bureaucracy ladies and gentlemen remember the old days when dad used to pile the kids into the station wagon and we'd go out and follow a garbage truck <laughs>
0: You then turned to Dave and you said, uh, "We know Mr. Letterman does not like the mawkish or the sentimental, but if something is true, then it is not that." And and Dave, I love you.
2: Yes, that that I I, I didn't mean to say those exact words. I certainly didn't mean to say I love you. But uh, yeah, that was I just I just thought at that moment after the joke, I should say something because everybody was being so cool about it before that. And like you say, there was no bet middle moment. There's no one saying, "We'll miss you" or anything like that. Everybody was just trying to be cool, right. you know? Yeah. And um he was a very important person to me, David Letterman. Cuz he defended you when in Omar. Well, no, I, ex- but more than that, he I think he changed the entire culture. He changed how people speak, you know. Almost like ESPN changed the way that people speak about sports. Yeah. And uh, you know, maybe maybe David Letterman uh, is responsible for ESPN.
0: No, there's no doubt. He was a huge influence. Dave used to come here because he's such an auto racing nut. He'd come here and watch the F1 races and stuff. Right? Oh, is that right? They would let him oh. in the back, and he would just go and set up. Oh, one. you
2: mean because there were there were? Uh, they didn't have that capability
0: like in the, the early nineties. Capability, so a right? Formula right. One race or something. He's like, "Oh, I'll just go to ESPN and wow. come in here." And like, oh, there's Dave.
2: Just That's like that. what I would do for football uh, back uh, when I, because uh, of course there was no dish or anything like that. And in New York, all you could watch was a, a Jets game. Uh, in the morning and a Giants game in the afternoon, and they both sucked. They were horrible. Right. And there were all these great games going on. So I would go to NBC and watch the feed. There would be every game. Right. And then I'd pretend to be an announcer. I'd turn off the – I still do that uh, when my son lets me. He hates when I do that. But I switch, like, on direct TV and I go, now. Nah, let's go, you know.
0: Right. Well, you got Red Zone now. You can just watch one channel. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, no, I don't do – I do my own reds.
0: Oh, so you, you like to do it. The book is called "Based on a True Story." A what memoir. book is that? This is your. book. Oh yes, my book. I, I can't wrote a wait book. To read
2: this. Based on a true story, a memoir by Norm Macdonald.
0: <laughs> it's going to be a huge hit. I is can't that wait. Right, Jen? There's Jennifer's here. Yeah, there's. <laughs> there, there's stories about Olmeyer. There's stories. Yes. That, but we have a story. A buddy here, Daniel. Uh, he and his wife wanted to watch uh, "Dirty Work" together, so <laughs> he DVR'd it. And they put it on, and it was not the film "Dirty Work" that you made. It oh, there's was, another one. Yeah, it, it, was, it a, was a it was a
2: documentary.
0: <laughs> no, it was an HBO film's uh, uh, "Soft Core," I think, is the category. Oh, category. oh it's a, it was a
2: porn. <laughs> you know, one time in my uh, in my hotel room, uh, I, I, you know, when they before you know the computer and everything, right. the only time I'd ever see pornography was in a hotel, and uh, sometimes they'd have like. The weirdest way they have, like, soft core pornography. You know what I mean? And this actually happened. I was l- l- looking around, and there was Pulp Fiction was on. Oh, I love Pulp Fiction, yeah. And it wasn't, it was Pump Friction. No, pulp Friction, maybe. Yeah. <laughs>
0: pump, Pump Friction. That's like, like if you geez. want to watch Saving Private Ryan, you'd get Saving Ryan's Privates.
2: Ugh. <laughs> Not as good a film at all. <laughs> Way less. Yeah, uh, you know, it's just basically a futon and a lady.
3: Doesn't have Spielberg's directorial mastery yeah really no, like Nothing. Right first no. no. No
2: sweeping. No, <laughs> <laughs> no sweeping crane shots. Right. Just a lot of uh, you know a lot of close-ups of uh, what looks like uh, it should be on a medical channel of some sort.
0: <laughs> Based on a true story, a memoir by. Norm Based McDonald.
2: on a true story, go out and a check memoir it out. by Norm Macdonald.
0: I, I thank you so much for coming, Norm. I know you're you're making a comeback. Are we done? Well, do you want to keep going?
2: We I, keep they told keep... me it was an hour. Oh, is We'll keep going. No, he's he, he's giving me the wave here. I oh, be, oh, I we're would done. Keep going. Good lord, I had no idea. Well, I think we should have something to wrap it up.
0: Sure. Well, tell me a great anecdote from the book. That's something that can really sell I'm it. Trying to think of a sports joke. Well, you've made a few of them. Well, I'll tell you this.
2: You want to know why? Beth, Beth this this, this a is not a joke. Told. This is not a joke. Okay. For, but I am But I'm. Uh, uh, I used to be a very heavy sports gambler.
0: Well, now you're prognosticating on the Levitard show.
2: I am prognosticating on the Levitard show, yes. I'm, uh, I'm what am I, seven and three for the year. That's awesome, man. Does that make money. Does that pay the juice well, you know. And uh, seven and three. Now listen to this. Professional football is the hardest sport to uh, to prognosticate. Baseball is the easiest. Now, the why is foot What?
0: Well, baseball is the easiest because the starting pitcher, you just go. No,
2: baseball is the easiest because uh, baseball is a game of streaks. Okay, gotcha. You think of Kirk Gibson hitting that home run, right? Mm-hmm. Against the much uh, better team. All yep. Uh, what game did he hit that home run in? He hit in game one. Game one? He won the series in game one. (laughs) So It shows you the power of the streak. Right. The Boston Red Sox, down three. The Yankees, yep. They win four in a row. And then what happens?
0: And they win the World Series. They win
2: another four (laughs) in a row, right? Because (laughs) of the streak, the power of the streak. So you hit a team when it's on a a good streak or a bad streak, and you just stay on them. All right. Stay on them. The reason professional football is so hard to bet uh, is because the ball ain't round. Every other sport almost, the ball is round. A round golf ball and a round hole. You throw a round a uh, basketball into a, a round hoop. But a football is this odd shape. So uh, if, if there's a fumble, that's anywhere, man. Right. And then there's this odd thing that's certainly against the rules. 30 guys jump on the football. Now, someone has that football at the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. And he's being touched, so that should be his possession. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's being punched in the testicles, you know, and <laughs> his eyes are being gouged out, and someone grabs the football. Someone else grabs the football, and finally they tear off the guy, and they go, oh, that's this. look, the big giant guy has the football. What a coincidence. So, there you have it. That's why football is it. so tough. So don't bet football because the ball ain't round.
0: Thanks so much, Dorp. I appreciate it. All
2: right. This is beautiful, Adnan. Love you. Oh, I
0: love you too, Norm. Rare that a guest nails
1: my name, by the way. Most of the time they just, hey buddy, how are you? Hey, Adnan, he learned it. Can we please point out to the audience how important that is to you? <laughs> yeah, I, I believe you once told me that as a Sports Center <laughs> anchor, you would view analysts and guests based solely on the fact about whether or not they name checked you as you would say (laughs) so if you had sal palantonio on for example and you said hey sal and he didn't say hello adnan you'd be like a terrible interview but if he said hey adnan (laughs) great
0: you're making me simply too petty here there's no doubt it's important to me i think listen in this business we're trying to personalize things you should get to know a guy a little bit for norm that's going above and beyond for my coworkers. We're supposed to be collegial on the air. They should know my name because I'm saying their name. Joining us now is Sal. Pedro What's the latest. Well, Adnan, it sounds like we're all one big happy family. Norm doesn't need to say my name, but I appreciate that he did. That shows he's
1: a good dude. How do you think that interview is going to be received by the average person? Strongly. One way or the other. Either it was a miserable 15 minutes or they loved it. One way or another, we got porn referenced on Cinephile two weeks in a row. Last week, Terry Crews. This week, Norm. That's a hot streak. All right, let's review a couple more movies, and then we're going to do
0: some streaming suggestions. Uh, First off, a film that's very different. It's called Audrey and Daisy. And this is a documentary about two teenage girls who are sexually assaulted and different sides of America. One is in Saratoga, and uh, one is in the Midwest. And um, basically, it's a story that I'm sure happens all the time. You know, teenagers are going to drink, and they're going to do it in high school. And unfortunately, what happens here is uh, rather tragic. Um, You know, one of the girls... It's uh, Audrey and Daisy are the two characters, and um, one of them, Audrey, is in Saratoga, where she's in high school, and having a good time at a party, and everything seems okay. She's 15 years old, and unfortunately, she has a little bit too much to drink, and what happens is a bunch of her so-called friends um, end up taking her clothes off and then writing all over her with, like, a markers. So they're putting, like, you know, lewd jokes on different parts of her body, um, and then it's later revealed that, you know, one of them actually violates her as well. Um when you 're watching the film you're just you know obviously you're you 're taken aback by the behavior while at the same time recognizing that it happens like the it, it goes from that you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, everyone just has a drink fifteen years old so one thing leads to another to okay wow that 's awkward to oh my goodness, and in the case of Audrey Po at Saratoga High School in Saratoga, California, she has too much to drink, guys write all over and make jokes, a couple uh, violate her in a very inappropriate manner. She wakes up the next morning doesn 't remember what happened, and then What's different about this story in this documentary is the use that social media plays. And the way that she ends up being affected by this is not by what she hears from students the next day she's at school, but it's abuse of cyberbullying. And it's all the comments that she gets on her Facebook page. So the film very smartly tracks, you know, in real time. So it's like the incident happens and then she starts writing to her friends, like, what happened? And, like, you know, you guys are supposed to be my friends. Like, oh, we were just being funny. We are just having a good time. And I said, but wait, I don't remember what happened. Like, I got marker all over myself with, like, all these – Gross jokes and stuff, and like this isn't funny. And and she's—it's just such overwhelming shame she feels and embarrassment. And you know, she goes to school one day. Her mom picks her up. Her mom says, "Yep, she went to her room, uh, went to take a shower." And then, like ten minutes later, her mom goes in there and, and she's hanging. You know, she'd like she'd she killed herself. And you're stunned watching the film because you go, "Oh my goodness!" Like I, I I get that this happens. I get that it would be incredibly painful and and shameful and humiliating. But you don't have to kill yourself. Like you can deal with this somehow. But then you watch it and you go, well, how would you deal with it? Like if you're a 15-year-old girl and everyone's laughing at you and, and everywhere you go you feel like everyone's judging you and your self-esteem is already low to begin with and you feel like you had friends but now they took advantage of you. And it's, it's awfully sad saying just how the parents are affected by it because now they want justice. Now here's the second part of this. One is these incidents happen. Two, sexual assault is notoriously difficult to convict in this country. And the guys that are then called in to talk about it say, yeah, okay, we were just having a little bit of fun. Okay, we had a few drinks, whatever, but a, everyone's going to collude together. You know, it's tough to really get to the truth. And B, like just to get a conviction the way the law is set up, it's incredibly difficult. Um, so Audrey's accusers don't end up getting much. I think it's maybe – I don't even want maybe a month in jail. Like it's incredibly light sentence. I don't even know if it's that. Maybe it's like a, a probationary sentence or like a halfway house. It's it's awful. The other story is about Daisy Coleman who's 14 years old and her 13-year-old friend, Paige. They're in Maryville, Missouri. And uh, same issue here, a few drinks at a party. <clears throat> got drunk one of the guys takes advantage of her uh she, the story the way it's told by the brothers is is, is heartbreaking he says that he, he woke up and he saw daisy outside and her hair was frozen uh to the ice outside on the lawn and like literally just to lift her head up like he had to like chop the ice off and like she was just blue and frozen and one of the the accused says that what happened was that Okay, we had a few drinks. One of the guys took it a little bit too far. and we're like, all right, got to clean this up. And then they just dropped her off outside. Like just the inhumanity, the fact that you're that uh, cold and, and miserable. You don't have a heart that you just, you just leave a 15-year-old girl outside frozen. You're like, no, oh, let's, just, let's just get out of here. Like, There's the body. Okay, we didn't kill her. Just figure it out. And the brother is obviously incensed, and he wants to exact justice. And the parents are trying to get justice. But, again, it's the same thing. It's all the cyberbullying. It's all the the Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and you're getting made fun of, and like, how do, you, how do you react by this? And you go through the court documents and the police investigations, and again, slap on the wrist. You can't, you can't really get much with these guys, three months, whatever it is. And the post-assault treatment of sexual assault victims, the way that they go back and live through it, it's a, it's a harrowing piece of work, but I think it's an important documentary to see. It's called Audrey and Daisy. It's directed by Bonnie Cohen and John Schenck, and it's currently on Netflix. It just started uh, – being available, streaming as of September 23rd. It was released at Sundance earlier this year, but I definitely recommend people to check out the film, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. Um, The basics of it I've kind of outlined, but trust me, when you you actually see the story and see how it unfolds and the power of it, it really is quite moving. And um, it's a real tragedy that Audrey is no longer with us. And even though Daisy is alive, as the documentary shows, she really has changed. She went from this really kind of sweet, innocent, uh, you know, bucolic lifestyle to now she's very kind of dark and morose and, You know, dyed her hair and tattoos, and she's very kind of has a lot of dark thoughts and demons. And you just go, you know, one person's dead, one person's alive, but her life is irreparably changed because of this incident. So it's a a rather sad story. It's a rather sobering documentary, but I do encourage it. Audrey and Daisy, I give it three and a half maple leaves. Uh, The next one I want to touch on is called Green Room. Uh, This is currently out on on DVD and uh, Netflix, Um, and it's a real disappointment. It got excellent reviews, which is why I wanted to see it. I said, well, okay, it's just a thriller. And uh, Patrick Stewart's in it. Patrick Stewart plays the bad guy. So originally, I'm like, okay, I'm in for that. And it's a couple of members of a punk rock band. Anton Yelchin, the lay actor, passed away. And Aliyah Shalcott, who you'll remember from, as Maybe from Arrested Development. Happy to see her working again. I'm like, hey, everybody else from that show has incredible roles, Maybe. Hey, she's back. All right, green room. Here we go. Uh, so basically, they're part of a punk rock group. But they're in this remote Oregon roadhouse playing, playing uh, a set. And... They end up witnessing a murder, and now it becomes a fight for survival. So it becomes a real horror film. It's written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier. And I guess the reason why people liked it was because uh, its grittiness or the fact that it was really kind of put you in that scene. But i got to be honest with you. I thought it was one concept, and that's it, which is members of a punk rock band see a murder. Now they're stuck in a room. It's called Green Room. They're being terrorized. That's it. To, To me, it was a rather rote thriller and nothing all that substantial um i guess the 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 aspect that is different is that they're being terrorized by a bunch of neo-nazi skinheads and again this is the thing i'm like oh it's patrick stewart all right captain mccard here getting down and dirty but it's a small role for him he's only in maybe 20 minutes and i would think in an actor like that like if he's going to play the villain either he's going to be like so cold and menacing or he's really ramping it up and he's just like wildly over the top instead he's neither he's just kind of there and kind of blonde uh I'm surprised it got good reviews, to be honest with you. On Rotten Tomatoes, people really like it, but I was disappointed. I'm giving Green Room one and a half Maple Leafs. As far as a good shock thriller goes, uh, it was not shocking or thrilling to me. Uh, Last one, I just want to quickly mention Storks because uh, Andy Samberg's in it. So like I said earlier, I have to watch everything he does. Uh, Good movie with the kids. I went and saw it. I give it three Maple Leafs. Again, we still haven't had a great kids film so far this year, um, but it's a sweet story about how babies are delivered and – Sandberg plays one of the storks, and Kelsey Grammer, who has a great voice, great gift for voice acting, he's like the evil, menacing stork. Um, But without giving away too much of the story, it's just really colorful animation, kind of a hyperkinetic plot, which is rare to say for a kid's movie. Like, Inside Out's one of those movies that kind of has a frenzied plot, but this one also – you know, the storks being rescued, now they're catching babies, now they're fleeing, now they're all over the place. And there's it's, it's actually quite herky-jerky, but it actually worked with the color. Um, remind me a little bit of the film Happy Feet, in that it had a lot of good colorful animation, but kind of a, kind of a wild plot at times. So, listen, good kids movie, good voice work, really sweet ending. If you like babies, they're all in. Three stars. <laughs> Three maple leaves. I'm sorry for storks. Continuing my love here for Andy Samberg. Streaming Suggestions. Uh, a few great ones here. Grizzly Man is currently on Netflix, the Werner Herzog documentary. It's it's insane. It basically – Werner Herzog, if you don't know his filmography, does uh, creepy and bizarre and oddball about as good as it gets. And Grizzly Man fits in that mold. Basically, if you like grizzly bears and the nature and the wild and wonder about what that world is like and want a documentary that puts you in the heart of it, go watch Grizzly Man. Patton, the great George C. Scott film, uh, war film. Of course, he won the best actor for it. I don't uh, think it holds up great. It's 1970. The movie came out, and you know now you've seen war sequences that are better, like Saving Private Ryan and Platoon and Glory. But the first 10 minutes of Patton, awesome. It's just him standing in front of an American flag giving the speech. It's one of the great openings in American cinema. Go back. if Right now, go on Netflix, watch the first 10 minutes of Patton just to get a sense of that awesome George C. Scott speech. Uh, just about patriotism and it's not necessarily that you agree with the speech because it comes across like a big blowhard. But I love the fact that that's exactly what George Patton would sound like, look like in terms of total immersion. George C. Scott gets in it right away and it's a powerful way to start a movie just – Right to the camera. Here we go. Also, Quiz Show. We've talked a lot about John Turturro, uh, his renaissance of the film The Night Of. He's also great in that Robert Redford film, 1994. As uh, those who have listened know, my disdain for Forrest Gump and the fact it beat out Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction for Best Picture. Also, what came out in 1994, Lion King, which is a great animated movie, and Quiz Show, which is a fantastic film. It's about a... uh, Uh, Quiz Show, obviously, makes sense with that title. And Ray Fiennes is one of the contestants in the show who gets answers fed to him through his ear. And Herbie Stemple is Totoro, who does not do that. He actually plays the game the right way because he's this nerdy, geeky Jewish guy with bad teeth, bad hair, big glasses. Like, you know what? He's not that photogenic. Fiennes is good-looking, handsome. He's going to be the star of the show, which is called 21. And Rob Morrow plays the journalist. terrible Boston accent by Rob Morrow, but he's okay in the movie. Hasn't done much since Northern Exposure. That was at the height of, hey, Rob Morrow, we got to get him in this. And he plays the guy who uncovers a story. A wonderful scene between Ray Fiennes and his dad in the movie, which is really powerful towards the end where he just, you know, he says, listen, you're not just shaming yourself, you're shaming me because his dad's this very area professor. Go ahead, Stan.
1: Wasn't that based on some sort of scandal with $64,000 question? Yeah. And
0: that's where they use that as kind of a jumping off point. And it, it goes – again, it asks questions about ethics and morality and doing the right thing. But it, you, you kind of see it from all sides. It's a film like that you see. You understand why a guy like Ray finds it. say, but it's too attractive to keep knowing all the answers and being the smart guy. And I can't expose this cover-up. And Robert Redford directed it. really good film. It's currently on Netflix. Also, just a few movies here on Amazon Prime, Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore documentary, one of his best. Uh, definitely ahead of the curve in terms of talking about gun violence and gun control, so it would be interesting, I think, considering all the events happening right now in our country, to go back and watch Bowling for Columbine. The Last Waltz, which I'll talk about another time, Scorsese documentary, it's about the band. It's really good, so go see it. I'll tell the Scorsese story about it another time, but uh, really well done, Robbie Robertson. It was influential in terms of concert films because he actually – the directing and the shot composition he did to the to the music. So he literally knew the set list, and for each lyric, he had a specific camera move. So when you're watching the film, it's not like just one floating camera and a Coldplay playing. Like on every single shot, he knows to go right to a close-up to a guitar, right to the drums, right to Robbie Robertson, because he's going to do this on this lyric. So it's really immaculate the way that Scorsese directs it. The Last Wall, it's a really good documentary. And Misery, one of the great horror movies of the last 20 years. You know about hobbling, don't you? <laughs> Kathy Bates won Best Actress for the role back in 1990. James Kahn, the scenery just grabs a typewriter and throws it on her head. <laughs> a little kitschy, I think, maybe in retrospect, but Rob Reiner directed a really good horror movie. Richard Farnsworth in the movie as well. Misery, way back from 1990. It's currently streaming and it's available on Amazon Prime. A Scorsese Story. Once again, check out the book, Martin Scorsese, a Retrospective by John Sean, I think, S-H-O-N-E. Maybe it's John Schoen. Either way, it's fantastic. So make sure you check it out. Um, one of the stories that was reminded of this, because we've talked so far about all the major ones, Main Streets, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, is Last Temptation of Christ. And I, a fun game I found with people who are real uh, cineasts and uh, movie geeks, I say, okay, who is Scorsese's fifth best film? Because most would argue that it's Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Main Streets is the four. And for five, you've got some that go, oh, I love Wolf of Wall Street. Some say I love The Departed. Some say Gangs of New York. Age of Innocence is one out of the, out of the box. Real great costume drama he did. Uh, King of Comedy would probably be mine because I think it's so funny and so underrated. But one that people mention is Last Temptation of Christ. And I'll lean on Stanzik here who was raised Catholic. Lapsed Catholic now? Is that fair to say? I'm still not going to church, but.
1: Yeah, raised Catholic. I, you know, I think most people, general progression of life here. <laughs> But but obviously familiar with all the, the dogma and the disciples. So the, 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 the
0: controversy around the film was this. Chris says he reads the book. I don't know if you read the book by Nikos Kazantakis. I thought you meant the Bible. <laughs> Not the Bible. Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantakis. He gets the book by Barbara Hershey, Hershey back when he was making Boxcar Bertha. It took him six years to read the book. But you know this, having you know, gone to church and being raised in Catholicism. He said what he found it difficult – and Marty was raised to be an altar boy. Like he was going to be um, – the guy who really devoted himself towards his faith but ended up becoming the, you know, the patron saint of modern cinema. He said, the problem was this. I found that the way that Jesus was described, he was just so holy and immaculate. and I couldn't understand it. Whereas when I read last temptation, I'm like, Oh, this is someone I can understand. It was a Jesus who was afflicted by self doubt and guilt and frustration and really had to kind of torture himself and torment himself uh, to get these sermons out of him and to deal with all these challenges and overcome what all is around him. So that's why I wanted to make the film. Couldn't get it made. Tried to get financing. They go, nobody wants to see this film. And all the right-wing people are not going to see this. They're furious with him saying, listen, we don't want to see Jesus depicted as an ordinary human being. Like, no, this is the son of God. If you believe in Trinity, et cetera. So he's going to all these uh, studios and they're going, listen, Marty, we love you. This is early 80s. So he's made Raging Bull. Like, he's made you know, his masterpiece. He's made Taxi Driver. He's made Mean Streets. So but they are going, we're not giving you money to make this. There's, it's not worth the riots and the controversy and the fact that United Artists, like they're just going to boycott the film. They're not going to put it in the movie. So he's talking to Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, and they go, okay, listen, you can make something else. Because like, he talked to Barry Diller, and he goes, listen, I, I can get you maybe like $4 million, but then Marty's like, I can't make a movie for $4 million. Last temptation of Christ, are you kidding? i got to go to Morocco and make it look like Bethlehem and all the rest of it, and how am I going to build Damascus in modern-day world? And they go, okay, here's a better idea. We'll give you something else just to keep working. So, so Dillerin uh, it wasn't Diller, sorry, it was Katzenberg and Eisner recommended Beverly Hills Cop. And he goes, what's that? And he goes, it's a fish out of water tale, but a cop in L.A. And Scorsese's response was, what's a fish out of water? <laughs> Just no concept of these things. Like, could you imagine Beverly Hills cop, Axel Foley, directed by Martin Scorsese? They also offered him witness. And he goes, what's that about? And they go, it's about these Amish people in Pennsylvania. And Martin goes, I don't, I know, I know nothing about Amish. I don't know. Harrison Ford, okay, great. It ended up being a really good movie. Peter Weir directed I think it was up for best picture. But Marty goes, I can't. Again, I have to make movies I can relate to. I don't know anything about Amish people in Pennsylvania. No. Long story short, he made After Hours, which we'll talk about another time. But a few years later, he gets the money for Last Temptation of Christ. And I got to be honest with you, maybe if I knew, you know, maybe if I'd read the Bible and, and been really in depth, that I would understand more of it. But at times, the movie's baffling. Like, so you have no idea, I think, unless you really understand Scripture. What exactly is happening? There's a few sequences that that still stand out. One of which is when uh, Jesus, who's played by Willem Dafoe, he gets um, spooked, you know, by the Holy Ghost. He's in the middle of the desert and he has these visions and stuff. And that's where I, 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 okay, I can appreciate what Marty was going for, this idea of the supernatural. But really, his guy, his version of Jesus, is is meant to be like someone that you could know and feel, and it's very tangible. And one of the criticisms of the film is Keitel, who plays Judas. Like he's, he's playing Keitel like Keitel like he's Mean, mean Streets. Like he's not talking like Judas, you'd think, like with an accent. Like he sounds like he's from Brooklyn, and it's like a Brooklyn guy playing Judas. And you're like, what? I, I get that Marty's going for modern-day style, but this is a, something that happened 2,000 years ago. So I, I didn't think keitel Kytel's got like red hair in the movie. It's all dyed, curly. I didn't think it was strong. Even the film tries to depict Judas not as bad as Christian theology does. So that was another issue. Huge controversy when it comes out. A bunch of theaters boycott it. He, he did get the film made. He was nominated for Best Director. I think the film community just goes, oh, my God, I can't believe Marty actually got this movie made. Let's reward him. So he actually was nominated, even though the film didn't make much money. It was a box office dud. Gene Siskel called it the best picture of 1988. He loves it. Um, but the best part of the movie, the best reason to watch it is the last 15 minutes because the title, Last Temptation of Christ, is that once he's being crucified and he's up on the cross, he has this vision of what would his life be if he hadn't accepted God's commandment. And that's the part that really inflamed the right-wing establishment. Christians who were very uh, upset because it shows him with Mary Magdalene, you know, in the throes of embrace and, you know, having a child and what life would be like. And, you know, it's all meant to be hypothetical. It's just like, hey, if I didn't accept what God wanted for me, this is what my life would have been. I would have been a carpenter. I would have got married. I would have had kids. I would have lived my life. And instead, I'm going to resist the last temptation. And the last shot is him being crucified. And he says the words, it is accomplished. They weren't sure what they were going to end it with. It should be, it is accomplished or it is done. Peter Gabriel did the score. It's kind of eclectic. It was good, but... Last Temptation of Christ, I think it, it has its virtues. I don't think it stands up with his other films. There are those who think it's a masterpiece, but Sanzik, have you ever seen Last Temptation of Christ? I
1: haven't, but it sounds like you have it on the low end of Marty Films. Yeah, it's not one that I, that I
0: easily cling to. It's not one that if I see it on TV, I'd want to see it again. Like I said, there's sequences and parts that I enjoy. I think to appreciate his filmography, it's important to see, it, but I, I don't think it really hits the mark as much as it should. And this is the danger now with Passion Projects. So Passion Project, Last Temptation of Christ – Uh, You know, Mean Streets, uh, Gangs of New York, and now Silence. So I hope it all works out. So earlier I reviewed the film Audrey and Daisy, gave it Three and a Half Maple Leafs. It's an excellent documentary, currently streaming on Netflix, and a real thrill to have one of the directors of the film, Bonnie Cohen, who directed it along with her husband, John Shank. Bonnie, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile.
3: I'm happy to. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, Audrey and Daisy, when, when I was talking about it, I realized maybe the audience is thinking, hang on a second, why do I want to watch this documentary about three cases of rape and two American high school students and one of whom undergoes tragic consequences because of what happens to her, and the other one emerges as a survivor but clearly is is impacted by it. What would be the best reason you're giving to people to see this? So, somebody who says, listen, I don't want to see that kind of subject matter, what is your response to them?
3: It's kind of a multi-pronged <laughs> response. I, I, I've had that a lot as well. We hear A lot of people say to us, you know, I really didn't want to see that film. I heard about it. I I struggled because of the subject matter. But then I saw it, and it was such an emotional, impactful, and I know this is a strange thing to say, but beautiful experience because while it's very difficult to see, it's important. And maybe one of the more urgent uh, issues of our time and so it's sort of incumbent upon us all to get together and watch it as difficult as it is so that we can have conversations about what's happening.
0: And what's unique, Bonnie, about your film is the fact it shows how cyberbullying has become a real issue now in today's society. And, you know, these issues of sexual assault had happened in the past, and I'm sure that the, the shame and humiliation the victims felt was powerful, but it was done at a different level. You go to school and it's written on your locker and people are passing notes to you, et cetera. The way that this film shows and really accurately depicts is how painful it is when it's being done on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and anonymous comments are being thrown and just vicious uh, comments and insults are being hurled your direction, and how you deal with that. Uh, how did you disseminate going through what happened to both Audrey and Daisy, what material you should show? And at what point do you feel like it's being sensationalistic to just pile on and show, look at this, this is what these two girls were facing. This is what you need to know what was happening to them.
3: Well, that's a great question. Um, We spent a lot of time trying to kind of titrate that exact balance because at a certain point, you know, a viewer could go numb if they they were experiencing too much of that. But what we really tried to do, and this is how we used um, the advice of our own teenagers and their friends, we wanted to get the role of social media in the film just right so that teenagers actually related to it. Um, So we spent a lot of time kind of figuring out how to depict it almost as another character in the film. And in terms of the things that were said to Daisy and Audrey and Delaney, uh, we wanted to give just enough so that you could have the feeling as a viewer as to how overwhelming that kind of barrage of commentary could be on your own psychology should it be happening to you. And then if you can imagine yourself as a teenager where, you know, your brain is still developing and you're trying to make good decisions and have good judgment if that kind of stream of commentary was coming at you what it would ha- what kind of effect it would have so we wanted to do just enough of it to have that effect but not too much to turn it into kind of a sensationalized uh almost ridiculous amount so uh we though, everything that you see on screen uh in terms of the social media they, those are actual comments and conversations from the transcripts of the accounts of those girls
0: Talking right now with Bonnie Cohen, who is the co-director, along with her husband, John Shank, of the film Audrey and Daisy. That documentary is currently available right now on Netflix. Bonnie, what's also appalling is not only the acts that are committed, but the criminal justice system. And I've always kind of known tangentially that sexual assault is something that's incredibly difficult to prosecute. But seeing your film, it really calls into attention that these guys are committing vile, heinous acts and yet are getting absolute wrist slaps. What... How did you deal with the indignation of, of seeing what the punishment is for these guys?
3: Uh, you know, that's, that's really hard because uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating and the injustices are so real. And, of course, through the making of the film, I think the, what became very apparent to us in our dealings with the families who have gone through this is that trying to get justice in, through the courts, through our legal system for these kinds of cases – is really an uphill battle. They're very hard cases to prove and to litigate and to find justice. So, you know, one of the reasons we made the film was to kind of show some alternatives to the justice system, you know, show how how you can take your own life in your hands and, and become an activist and find other girls or boys who have been through something like this and find support that way because it is a very frustrating legal proposition, um, I, I don't know what to say other than we made the film for that reason. The frustration that we felt over the injustices is why we went into this subject to begin with. So um, I, I, I think that I, I think that there's a very kind of interesting balance and walk, you know, tightrope to be walked between finding justice, but also remembering. That, you know, in, in a number of these cases, certainly at least one in the film we made, uh, the boys are really young. You know, this happened when they were 14, 15 years old. And so you have to be really careful about how to handle juveniles, of course. And, uh, and I, I, I think we all, John and I came away feeling that rehabilitation for these boys and girls is the most important thing we can do as a society. And we're not sure it's really getting done.
0: Yeah, I think that, that raises the further point, Bonnie, the fact that, you know, like all great documentaries, which your film is, they expose the problem and they really showed in detail and in, at times excruciating detail, but what's important to see is revealed. The counter to that then becomes, okay, what is the solution? How do we deal with the issue of sexual assault in this country and what the punishment is? What, what did you come away from thinking about that issue?
3: You know, I, it, that's also a great question, and, and we hope that people watch the film and come away with some hope not necessarily, you know, concrete solutions, but a path towards solution. What we found is that, you know, early education of our boys and girls is essential around issues of sexual assault, sexual relationships, uh, but it's also essential around the use of social media, and that is something that we're just getting our heads around in this country. We don't really have uh, a a core curriculum around how to use social media, and we're finding that, You know, the earlier you can get in with kids, 6th, 7th grade, even earlier in some cases, and start to talk to them about these issues, this kind of thing doesn't happen. It's the conversations that parents and teachers and adults, coaches, can be having with their kids that can help prevent this kind of behavior. So that's number one. And number two is I think there's a character in the film, Charlie Coleman, who is Daisy's older brother, who is seen in the film working with, he's he's an athlete and he's a coach, he's a baseball coach for Little League, and you see him in the film working with his younger players, and you hear him talk about how he likes to talk to his boys about, you know, behavior towards girls, et cetera, that happen kind of naturally in the course of their conversations. And we hope that that kind of serves as an example, as a model, for what boys can do, how they can find support for each other, how they can help guide each other, how they can... Because, you know, a lot of boy... most boys out there are good boys. They're not, you know, these... These boys don't start out wanting to commit these crimes and do this kind of thing. So I hope that, you know, people who watch the film can see Charlie as kind of a leader to- in in the kind of community of men doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. He's a good dude, and you can tell he's a protective brother, but also somebody who seems level-headed, which is unfortunately a quality which seems to be lacking among most these days. Last one for you, yeah. Bonnie. <laughs> what do you think the state is of documentaries? For all those would-be documentarians out there, how tough is it right now to get these films made?
3: Well, I think it's a really, you know, we really feel, we've been doing this a long time, and we feel that there's a real renaissance going on in documentary right now. There are so many more platforms, Netflix, Amazon, these digital online platforms where you can release your films. There are many more opportunities and outlets for content. So uh, I I think we see this as a really interesting and important time for documentary film. There's a lot of interest in it. I think people are turning towards these kinds of movies uh, for a real experience. And uh, you know there there are a lot there are many more places to see them and experience them. So we're feeling very positive about the state of the the state of the industry from a documentary perspective.
0: Yeah, I know the film definitely had a warm reception at Sundance earlier this year. Currently available on Netflix, Audrey and Daisy, check it out. Bonnie Cohen, John Shank, the co-directors. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, John. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, Cinephile. As always, we really appreciate you listening. Coming up next time, we're going to have J.K. Simmons, who's fantastic. Met him at Celebrity Softball in San Diego. He's a great guy. He's going to have funny stories. Uh, His new film, The Account, is coming up. And I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk movie podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the
2: ESPN app.